Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Helix Center and our conference on uh, coding and the new human phenotype. Uh, this is the fifth of four roundtables. The previous four have been, I think, fantastic, and I welcome our audience out there to check out those four uh, roundtables that are available on YouTube. This afternoon, we are excited about our, cop, our, our topic, which is the universe. Is the universe a metaverse? And we're going to hear more about that and what that could possibly mean, because maybe the title's a bit opaque, perhaps not. But I want to tell you something about our participants before we proceed. Um, Elias Dakwar, Dr. Elias Dakwar actually helped conceive some of this uh, idea of the entire conference on coding. I want to thank him for that. He's taking part today as one of the participants. He's an associate professor at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. And board certified addiction and general psychiatrist. He has been researching novel treatments for addiction for over a decade and the support of several grants from the National Institutes of Health. A special focus of his research has been evaluating sub-anesthetic ketamine infusions for cocaine use disorders in both laboratory and clinical settings, as well as investigating ketamine infusions as an adjunct to mindfulness-based treatment, mind-body practices, motivational interviewing, and other behavioral frameworks for alcohol, cannabis, and opiate use disorders. He has a more general interest in the impact of contemplative and non-ordinary experiences and of the interventions that might occasion them in the cultivation of well-being. Christopher Fuchs is a professor of physics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, who specializes in quantum information theory and quantum foundations. He is an author or co-author of over 160 scholarly pieces, one of which, Unconditional Quantum Teleportation with H.J. Kimball's Experimental Group, was voted a, quote, top 10 breakthrough of 1998, unquote, by the, science, by the editors of Science. He is a winner of the International Quantum Communication Award and a fellow of the American Physical Society. He is most widely known for the development of the quantum interpretation known as cubism, cubism, where quantum theory is not seen as a direct representation of what is in the universe, but rather as an aid to decision-making in a universe where nature's events have a kind of ultimate autonomy or creativity. Emily Adlam is a postdoctorate associate at the Rodman Institute for Philosophy and Science at the University of Western Ontario. She received her PhD in relativistic quantum information from the University of Cambridge. Prior to that, she completed the Perimeter Scholars International Program in theoretical physics, and she did her undergraduate degree in physics and philosophy at the University of Oxford. She works on the foundations of quantum mechanics and related issues in the philosophy of science and is particularly interested in approaches to physics which go beyond the time evolution paradigm, encompassing a range of possibilities like temporal non-locality, retrocausality, and all-at-once laws. Sylvester James Jim Gates Jr. is a theoretical physicist. He is a University of Maryland University uh, Systems Regents Professor, the John S. Professor of Physics, and a College Park Professor Emeritus. He currently holds the Clark Leadership Chair in Science and serves 
as a professor of physics with the physics department, as well as affiliate professor of public policy in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, College Park, Maryland. Gates served on the US President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, contemporaneously on the Maryland State Board of Education from 2009 to 2016, and the National Commission on Forensic Science from 2013 to 2016. He is known for his work on supersymmetry, supergravity, and superstring theory. David Chalmers is University Professor of Philosophy and Neuroscience and co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at New York University. He is author of The Conscious Mind, Constructing the World, and Reality, Virtual Worlds, and the Problems of Philosophy, which was just released this year. He co-founded the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness and Phil Papers Foundation. He has given the John Locke Lecture and has been awarded the Jean Nicode Prize. He is known for formulating the quote-unquote hard problem of consciousness, which inspired Tom Stockard's play, The Hard Problem and for the idea of the extended mind, which says that the tools we use can become parts of our minds. One minute. Let me take this, sorry. <laughs> Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Okay, everyone, uh, welcome. Uh, this is really a very exciting topic for us to leap into, <laughs> and I hope we will make a leap. So does anyone want to start off with a general sort of formulation of uh, what it might mean for the universe to be a metaverse? Well, I'm willing to start. Um, I th first of all, I would say it doesn't mean what most people think, at least from my perspective. What my own research has led me to do in this area is quite astounding. I started from a, a position of total skepticism having read about John Wheeler's It From Bit, which is, you know, that information leads to the existence of, of that universe that we live in. And I remember quite, when I was young, first reading it, thinking, what an insane idea. So 15 or 20 years ago, in my own research, I found mathematical evidence of error-correcting codes in, the, in what may be the fundamental laws of our universe, if ideas related to string theory are correct. And so at that point, I concluded that uh, if you think about this stuff long enough, you too can actually become crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, embedded in that idea is this notion that the information is a sort of an elemental aspect of the universe. Um, is, is that true? Is that a good way to, to put it? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, so I'm a disciple of John Wheeler's that, that, that you just mentioned. I did some undergraduate work with him. And um, his thinking went through various stages. Um, he started, I think, when, when it was finally realized that, um, that black holes were inevitable, Wheeler started worrying that, that somehow every law of physics could ultimately be transcended. So, so for instance, it used to be believed that baryon number was a fixed quantity in the universe, which you throw baryons into the black hole, and the number of baryons decreases. So what was once considered the law of physics was transcended by black holes. And um, so he, he, he went through this phase of thinking, 
well, this is transcended, that is transcended. And he was left with a position where he would say, uh, there is laws, but the only law is that there is no law, because they're always ultimately transcended. So law without law was one of his, his uh, slogans. And after that, he started thinking, well, if the universe isn't um, made of, of particles, or fields, or even geometry, because geometry can become singular, what must it be made of? And that's where he somehow landed on the idea that it was information. Um, and so I, I took that as my starting point. But then, ultimately, I sort of worked away from that because it uh, ontologized information in a, a way that I thought was unhealthy thinking. So what we needed to understand instead was that the universe is the universe, and then there are thinking beings in this universe, and they use information. And they use information in certain ways because the universe is a certain way. But the information itself is not part of the stuff of the universe. So one can, one, one can transcend one's mental. <laughs> yeah, I also tend to be quite skeptical about the get-from-bit hypothesis because I think it fails to distinguish between what is in the world and the information that we receive about the world. You know, obviously, we formulate physics on the basis of information that we have received, and thus you know, it's quite natural that the physics we thus formulate exhibits various information-theoretic properties because it's the result of certain sort of epistemic constraints subject that agents like us are subject to. Uh, our physics is going to re reflect those kinds of constraints. It's going to reflect the kinds of information we can obtain, uh, but that doesn't mean that the physics is about information, it just means the physics is formulated on the basis of information, and thus it, it will naturally have information-theoretic features. Well, our topic is, is the universe a metaverse? I think the metaverse actually has features that go beyond the simple it-from-bit idea. It may have something in common. I mean, the, I mean, the metaverse standardly stands for a virtual world that we create. I mean, Neil Stevenson introduced the term in his science fiction novel, Snow Crash, back in 1992, where the metaverse was a, basically a virtual reality environment that people would go into with, uh, with headsets and the like, and interact with other people, and live a, uh, at least a partly digital life. And now, of course, the tech corporations have appropriated this idea and using it, you know, Meta is now using it as a uh, as a label for the uh, for the ecosystem of virtual worlds that they would like to uh, they would like to build. So when I hear, is the universe a metaverse? I hear, is our universe a virtual world inside someone else's universe? In the same way that the uh, the metaverse would be a, uh, a a digital world, a virtual world inside our universe. I mean, that would have elements of the it from bit idea in it, because if our universe is a virtual world inside someone else's metaverse, then presumably we're running on, uh, on someone else's computers, and there's going to be a level of, uh, level of bits there. But I take it, but that idea, though, that we're in a virtual world, goes way beyond the it from bit, uh, the it from bit idea. The it from bit idea can be understood as saying there's a, there's a level of digital processes in the, uh, in the constitution of our worlds. Maybe there's even a digital physics. It's a, Interesting speculation, maybe true, maybe false. But is the universe a metaverse? It's like it from bit on steroids. There's a, there's, there's bits and there's a there's bits and we are grounded within a uh, a vast universe beyond it. Well, 
how then how could it have been very appealing, let's say, to Wheeler? And there's also what they would Ed Fredkin also had written, written about this some years back. Um, that so since we have mostly skeptics here, it seems about that idea of it from bit. That's great. That's that seems like nice to have that sort of consensus. But I like um, the idea. No, no, okay. I think probably right. in your fault. Like it was two cool. and two. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Really, yeah. 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 All right. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in us sort of fleshing out just for the just to be fair and honest to the idea. What what is it? Because I think the general audience may not appreciate. Well, what does that even mean to say the universe is made up of information? That seems like if you say it's made up of atoms, you go, all right, I got that. Well, it, I mean, there's, there's quite a distinction. So you brought up Ed Fredkin. Ed Fredkin thought that the world was a program running on something that the last time I heard him speak was the other. Mm. The universe is a program running on the other. What's the other, Ed? Well, no answer. And so that I, I never found a productive line of, of thought. Um, Wheeler, on the other hand, didn't think that the universe was a program running on anything. So when he was saying it from bit, he would even say that the only thing that's going on in the universe is higgledy-piggledy, which was the, the first time I'd ever heard the term, and I had to look it up in Oxford <laughs> English Dictionary. Right. You know, that the universe is, is just sort of bubbling out of, out of, out of chaos. Uh, but the stuff that's bubbling up is information, in Wheeler's mind. So they're very different worldviews. So the, the well, remember, there's no ether, right? I mean, for a long time, it seemed we couldn't do any physics without there being an ether. Yeah. Right? And people said, oh, no, there isn't. Uh, but we still have these waves, right? I mean, so can you, is it, is it fair to be too critical of him for not being able to come up with well, what is, I, I, I kind of... Oh, you mean Fred Kim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it fair to be critical for somebody who says... I can't tell you what the medium <laughs> yeah, is. I, I, I can't tell you what the universe is, but it's running on the other. The idea, I mean, the other hand, you might say the mind of God, and how is this more productive? <coughs> that, that would be my one. The idea goes way beyond Franken, though. I mean, I mean Konrad Zuse, who, uh, who one of the inventors of the computer back in uh, yeah. 1943, he wrote reams, manuscripts on the idea that physics might be, uh, might be digital. And that's what I take to be the core idea of it from bits, just that there's a level of physics which is somehow digital. If, for example, as Stephen Wolfram has sometimes thought, maybe our universe is a cellular automaton uh, running off, um, you know, like the game of life, bits interacting with bits at the bottom level. That would be digital physics. That would be enough. It's probably true, but it's not a crazy idea. It's a perfectly sensible idea that physics could be digital. Can I um, even push it back one step, uh, step further? So, as I said, when I, in my own work, found evidence for error-correcting codes, possibly in the standard sorts of laws that follow from Einstein and uh, Maxwell, which is where we physicists make our living, uh, I had a hard time getting it published, that we were finding error-correcting codes in this thing called supersymmetry, which is an extension we've not seen in the laboratory, but it extends mathematically uh, the tradition that starts with Maxwell and Einstein. And so when I wrestled with this, one of the things that occurred to me is that it's not just about the digital part, because you can all, in my mind, you can go all the way back to Plato's allegory of the cave and ask the questions, where do we fit in that story? Because I'm sure you're all familiar, this is a famous uh, um, parable about these individuals trapped in a cage that can only see shadows on a wall, and they perceive those shadows 
and the shadows come from outside the cave, and they perceive those shadows as being reality. But when exposed to actual reality, they don't know how to interpret and readily what they're encountering. And in some sense to me, it's really odd that this several millennium, uh, millennia year old idea has been partially realized in where physics has taken us a couple of thousand years later. To me, this is a very odd development. But one of the things I would caution a group like this discussing these ideas is not to forget what Einstein said about Galileo. Einstein called Galileo the, the father of physics because, and this is Einstein's word, he drummed it into our heads that the way we know about reality is by measuring and observing reality. And that if you have a proposition that leads to no measurable outcome, it exceeds the definition of science. Well, it's sort of like this idea that that's a metaphysics. You're dabbling in metaphysics. But it's interesting that you mentioned these error correcting codes and I think, well, if a consequence of your view of the universe or your model of the universe includes error correcting codes that you're citing, we say, well, that's a consequence. Right? So, can you say more about that? I mean, is there a way to test that or is there, are there implications of that idea that, that might be relevant to, you know, could I have a few minutes to think about that? Okay, sure. You can ask some of our other participants <laughs> to weigh in here. I need to think about that for a second. I think I, what, what it's reminding me of is this, you know, this space-time interval and special relativity that most of the folks out there have read a lot about relativity may not appreciate that there's this geometry that's the space-time invariant that's a pretty cool mathematical finding. And that does confirm a lot of what happens in special relativity. Most folks don't realize that that geometry is built into space-time. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that I think you know, I think Plato's cave is a good example of, of the sense in which some caution is required in making these kinds of claims because, like the observers in Plato's cave, you know we are presumably quite limited in our ability to observe things, and we are, are observing sort of reflections on a wall rather than whatever is causing them. And one needs to be careful in distinguishing between properties of that are sort of properties of our, the observations in virtue of the way in which we're situated and our own limitations versus properties that are properties of the world. And my concern is that with these discussions about it from bit, what's going on is that we're mistaking properties of our observations, like the existence of certain sorts of epistemic limitations or entropy bounds and so on. Uh, we're mistaking those things for properties of reality. Uh, we need to sort of keep in mind that the epistemic limitations that apply to our own observations aren't necessarily properties of whatever the, the observations are ultimately being caused by. An original criticism of quantum mechanics. Uh, yes, that's that is one criticism. Yeah, but I think it applies outside quantum mechanics as well. It's not limited to that particular domain. You challenged me a few seconds ago, so I'm prepared now to respond. Great. So um, when I I was part of a collaboration, uh, three mathematicians, three physicists, and we came upon this very strange uh, discovery. Uh, for a few years afterwards, I would get the question, what does this mean? And that's kind of what you, you just asked me. And this it has led me personally to ask the strangest question in my career, which is, if the laws of physics involve error correcting codes, and as soon as someone tells me they see a super partner in some laboratory, then I can make that assertion. If that occurs, 
The question is, how in the world did the laws of physics get to error correction? And to answer that question, the only way I know how to answer that is to look at nature herself as a model. And there's only one part of nature that I know where error correction is discussed, it's genetics. And in, in genetics, the proposition is the error correcting codes are put there by the forces of evolution. And so the question translated to what I have seen is what does it mean for evolution to act on the mathematical laws of the universe? I don't, I can state the question, I have no idea what the answer would be. That's nice. Thank you. I am glad you thought about that. <laughs> it, it, there is a, an old tradition, or there is a tradition, maybe it doesn't exist so much anymore, of uh, thinking that the laws of nature might evolve. And, I mean, we were talking about Wheeler earlier, Wheeler thinking that the laws can be transcended, ultimately there aren't any laws, but... There was uh, an American philosopher uh, named Charles Sanders Peirce who uh, believed that the laws of nature could evolve and that laws of nature were habits. I mean, there's even a, there's like a lovely story of Peirce's explanation for gravity was that um, in, in the primordial universe things were going around and some things flew out and some things sort of formed the habit of going around each other, and that's, that was the origin of gravity. That it, it was a natural selection effect. So, uh, so this, this group of philosophers, William James, Charles Sanders Peirce, John Dewey, they were known as American pragmatists, and they were perfectly willing to believe that the laws of nature could evolve. And um, there's a nice, I mean, I'm just telling historical things. There's um, the great mathematical physicist Henri Poincaré, uh, his brother-in-law, Emile Boutreau, believed that the laws of nature could evolve. And Poincaré wrote a nice essay of, about what could it mean for the laws of nature to evolve. How would you have some kind of empirical evidence that the laws are evolving? And he said presciently, if, if you see that your theory gives rise to a singularity, then this must be a statement that the theory itself is telling you, I can't go, I can't go forever. So I, I thought that was very nice. But, I mean, you could ask yourself about the metaverse and say it's a, and some people do, they hear about it, they say that's a crazy idea. And then you as a prominent philosopher <coughs> have written a whole book about it, which means to some degree you take it seriously. So why? Why isn't it a ridiculous idea? Why is it something to actually think about? Well, the metaverse is not a ridiculous idea. The metaverse is actually something that people are trying to create right now in the tech corporations well, and elsewhere. We have that we are. But then there's the hypothesis. So I distinguish the metaverse, which is about the virtual worlds that we create from, say, the simulation hypothesis, the hypothesis that we're living inside a metaverse or a, uh, or a, a simulation. And that's, I mean, that's, of course, an old idea in science fiction. You get it in, um, I mean, you find it in the Matrix, but you also find versions of it. Plato's cave is not too far from a version of it. Rene Descartes talking about the hypothesis that maybe all this could be a dream, all this could be produced by sensations produced by an evil demon. 
Yeah, the idea that all this is a computer simulation is a successor to that idea. Why take it seriously? Well, one reason to take it seriously is just the idea that there may be many metaverses, many simulations created in the history of the, uh, of the universe, maybe actually many more virtual universes than non-virtual universes, maybe even many more non-virtual people, many more virtual people than non-virtual people. I'm assuming, because I'm assuming those virtual people are actually conscious and having conscious experiences like ours, then um, you say statistically, what are the odds that uh, I'm one of the, uh, the lucky ones at ground zero, unsimulated? Nick Bostrom has actually given a uh, statistical argument that we should, uh, we should take this hypothesis very seriously. I mean, and the fact that we're now actually creating these universes, I mean, we don't yet have simulated universes, anything like the depth and detail of the physical world, but no one would be surprised if in, say, a century, we were, we were getting pretty close to that. The fact that technology is going there gives us all, maybe all the more reason for us to take this seriously as a realistic possibility. So I don't advocate the idea. I don't come out and say, yes, we are definitely in a simulation. But I take it it's a grand metaphysical speculation about our universe that we should take seriously. And it's an interestingly, you know, it's continuous with the it from bit idea. There's a level of digitality underneath our reality. But of course, it goes way beyond it. Sometimes I talk about the it from bit from it idea. Yeah, there are bits underneath the its. The apples and particles are made of a level of bits, but underneath that level of bits, there may be, uh, there may be so much more, such as, for example, the world in which the simulation takes place. So I think about the simulation hypothesis as a version of the it from bit from it idea. But earlier I spoke about the simulation hypothesis, the hypothesis as exceeding the bounds of physics, at least as I understand it. And when I speak to the public in general, because I've been many times asked about this, I just point out to people that if you take the simulation hypothesis seriously, then ghosts are possible. Because if we're programs running on some underlying structure, when that program is terminated, as long as the underlying structure is not damaged, you can reinitiate that program. That's a ghost. And in my universe, I don't understand how ghosts can exist. Are you guys making backups? <laughs> yeah, I have concerns about the simulation hypothesis for the similar, similar reason. Uh, at least within a sort of scientific context, I think there are certain kinds of hypotheses that we just have to prima facie rule out because they prevent us from using empirical evidence in the usual sorts of way, sort of way to confirm scientific theories. And I think that things like the simulated hypothesis, this as well as related things like you know, the Everett interpretation, uh, various things which significantly interfere with the relationship we presume ourselves to have with our evidence for our theories, just need to be ruled out at the beginning if we want to do any science. We just, you know, those things that it could they could be true, but we have to assume they're not true if we're going to do sensible science. I just want to say, some of us here are not scientists, we're philosophers. Yeah, that's right. We're fine philosophical hypothesis yes. without I, being I, subject I, to the standards of science. Yes, yes. So, so I, I'm happy with that philosophical hypothesis, but certainly within the point of view of trying to do science, these sorts of hypotheses need to be just put aside. Well, it's funny because I think even in Descartes' case, you know, people might argue that whereas he made a way, he made a way out of this 
conundrum could it be that the entire our experience is generated by a demon etc you know he made his way out by I think therefore I am and then, and then the, the God's perfect and that's how I got out of that trap right but you could argue and I, I accept this that the, the, the implausibility of that first anyway that's the way I take it Some people the, think yeah they, they the dad really yeah. did a lot of the, the heavy lifting in moving away from that, that some, some people think there could be evidence for versions of the simulation hypothesis maybe not for the perfect, indistinguishable right. simulation, but maybe say it's an imperfect simulation with, with glitches. Jim's colleague, Zore Davuti, and others had a paper talking about, you know, what would it look like if we were in an approximate simulation that kind of cut some corners on the equations and right. found some potential evidence there, or if there are you know, glitches like in the, you know, the black cat that crosses your, your path, there's evidence, potential evidence for the uh, imperfect right. simulation hypothesis, so that makes it at least maybe continuous with science, but once it becomes the perfect simulation that Descartes was talking about, one indistinguishable yeah. from physical reality, I guess at that point it becomes philosophy because there's no experiment you can do. Well, yeah, from, from a scientific point of view, it's the problem is not so much that there never could possibly be any evidence, but more that there aren't really sort of meaningful steps that we can, you know, we can take to go out and seek evidence. We have to just wait for some glitches to show up or for... Well, you know, the people outside the matrix who decide to take us out and tell us the truth. You know, that, that those are those would certainly count as evidence for that hypothesis were they to occur. But there's not much we can do to bring about those things happening as as practicing scientists. We can run our computers really hard and really fast to try and strain them to the max. See if we burn out those computers and simulate the universes. <laughs> pull the whole thing to a halt. People have suggested serious research programs like that. Well, I don't know how serious. <laughs> the point that, that these kinds of hypotheses also have the consequence that you know, looking back at empirical evidence to do things like you know, try to confirm a theory like quantum mechanics is kind of pointless because the, the simulation people can make our empirical evidence do whatever they like and so there's no, there's no point in reading anything at all into uh, one's empirical evidence if one believes that this is a, a viable possibility. So at least within that kind of, kind of domain those possibilities need to be set aside, I think. And uh, my colleague, Dr. Chalmers, points out something that I've many times tried to convey to people, that if you believe in the perfect simulation, then the programmers in that simulation fit exactly the traditional definition of gods. Right. And so one gets outside of the realm of science very quickly if you believe in that perfect simulation. That's a great illustration in my uh my book, Reality Plus, of God creating the universe. Yeah, she's a teenage girl, and the next universe up working on her, uh, working yeah. on her computer, and all the uh, the galaxies and nebulas come from there. So it may not be a traditional God. <laughs> could be a creator. Could be all powerful. Could be all knowing about our universe. But not particular. No particular reason to think they're benevolent or all good or all wise. Well, I, yeah, I think a reasonable uh, a reasonable point back about the ghost idea that you cite, Jim, is that. Well, whatever simulation, assuming I don't, I don't assuming we, we live in a simulation, of course, whatever one we live in, there's going to be some rules and regulations about the way. Whether they're going to be standard ways we're accustomed to the world, and so no, we don't have ghosts in our world. And uh, while, whereas it would be possible, were it a computer program that have ghosts in the world that these computer programmers, let's call it maybe is the best of all possible worlds, I'll quote Leibniz, right? So they figured out, no, we're not gonna have repeats in this world. So we don't, but that's one of the reasons we're not accustomed to it. We don't have rabbits that speak either. Yes, but one of the things, you know, all of us have thought about quantum mechanics and yes, it's stochastic and there's probability and what have you. 
but I, I have a hard time thinking about science where arbitrariness is totally arbitrary. Yeah. And again, the perfect simulation hypothesis that teenage girl might one day wake up and decide to change her mind yeah. and allow in a thousand years for me to show up again. Yeah. Now, that might have some attraction to me personally, <laughs> but I don't think that's how science... I, I see no evidence, let me put it this way, in my life that science is like that, that our universe works like that. But, but I wonder if there's any pragmatic value in holding this, I think, silly belief, because it, you know, it's not something you can invalidate. But it m might be that it gives some comfort to the believers, mm -hmm. you know, just as one finds comfort in religion. Do you find comfort in the idea that, that, that you're some young lady's toy? It's a very specific form of comfort. Maybe there's an afterlife here. I don't know. So, I don't know. I think most people find this horrifying, the idea. At least initially, they think, oh my god, we're in the matrix. It's a simulation. None of it's real. My life is an illusion. My own view is that's the wrong reaction that, yeah, I mean, it could turn out that we're in a simulation, and if so, life goes on. This is still real. I'm still having this conversation with you. We're still, you know, I've still got relationships. Um, I still have, I still have community. Those are the things that bring, bring meaning to your life. So I'd say I don't find the hypothesis as horrifying as some people find it. I wouldn't say I find it especially especially uh, comforting. It doesn't mean that we're all somehow at the mercy of this simulator as we are with a god, and I've got to hope that this simulator is benign. Well, surely, you know, if you were suddenly presented with good evidence that this were true, this would affect your decision-making processes in some ways. Like, for me, it would, would significantly reduce my faith that the laws of nature are going to continue working in the way I expect. I would probably stop predicting things in quite the way I usually do because, you know, the simulator could change their mind at any time, um, whereas, you know, if I don't believe in a simulation, I, I tend to assume the laws of nature are going to continue to hold in roughly the same way. Well, we could consider the system one, from the point of view of doing philosophy, let's say, uh, we could consider it a very uh, pregnant form of like a thought experiment. Because right? it, it, we just talked about some other philosophers, Plato and Descartes, and it's a way to stimulate our thinking about, well, what do we think is the ultimate, what is existence like ultimately? And to me, that is in fact the, the value of a scientist discussing the nature of reality with philosophers. Because in particular, physics used to be natural philosophy before Newton came along and turned it into physics. So physics in particular bears a very, very close relationship with, with philosophy. And so I think of the simulation idea, although I find it sort of unacceptable in the framework of, as I understand the way our universe works and physics works, I find it as a tempting driver to make me think more deeply about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the value, as a sort of hardcore scientist, that's the value that I see in this discussion, that it forces me to think deep, more deeply and to try to find the errors in my thinking. I think there's possibly sort of intermediate hypotheses which, which I find a bit more scientific, um, where you know, rather than supposing that there's a higher consciousness creating a simulation, it's the idea that you know, maybe reality, the underlying reality is, is kind of very different from the way we experience it, and our, our reality is in some sense a simulation running on some very different kind of hardware. I mean, there, you know, there are, have been various suggestions that you know maybe the world has less dimensions than we think it does, and that kind of thing. Um, and in a sense, in that kind of picture, there is 
something about our experience which is sort of simulated or illusory. And I think that kind of that that kind of possibility seems a bit more more within the realm of science. Maybe the simulation speculation, yeah, I mean, can, there are ways, I totally agree, there are ways that elements of this could be true without a full-scale mm -hmm. simulation. I mean, you could dial it all the way back to the it from bit idea, and okay, well, yeah, maybe there's just a level of, uh, there's a level of, of bits here generating our reality. Maybe there's something underneath the bits. Well, we don't know what that is. Maybe it's not a simulation, but maybe it's something else that's unknowable. Hey, some, some people have speculated that might be consciousness. Maybe uh, the universe could be made of consciousness underneath the bits. I call that it from bit, from, uh, from consciousness. But even if you don't go that far, there are, you know, the idea that, for example, space could be emergent from something more fundamental than space, underneath the space. This is an idea that's increasingly taken seriously in, uh, in physical theories. And I think it kind of squares in quite interesting ways with the it from bit idea or the simulation idea that, the space we actually experience is somehow emergent. And I think, yeah, thinking about all these grand, they start as initial metaphysical, grand metaphysical hypotheses, but you know, some of them can end up turning into science. We, we, we cycle around this, it, this comes up a lot, and it's come up in our other talks this weekend, where um, something like the term information, which seems to be two-faced is one is like well there's what there is and there's what we know about what there is or that's a constant challenge for us and I mentioned you know the original struggles and still for many people ongoing struggles with how to interpret quantum mechanics um, there's the, the, so but the interest in information uh, also I my understanding of it is that it also arose after Stephen Hawking made the suggestion about how entropy might be related to black hole formation and, and its possible uh, evaporation of black holes. And, and that fits into this holographic theory, I think, also. Am I right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That's connected, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering about that, I, going back to, well, what are the bits and, and why, why do these keep coming up and what to say about consciousness and what to say about the universe? <coughs> I mean, I have been thinking about entropy bounds a lot recently in my recent research, um, and the kind of the question that I keep coming back to is, is precisely this question, are these entropy bounds a feature of reality itself, or are they a feature of our ability to get information about, about reality? Um, because what the entropy bounds are supposed to say, essentially, is that within some region of space-time, roughly speaking, the, the information contained in that region is uh, proportional to the surface area rather than the volume. Um, and a lot of people want to interpret that as a kind of an ontological statement about what's out there in the world. Um, but if you think space-time is discretized, there's a sense in which it's natural, that's a natural kind of epistemic constraint that we should only be able to get information out of a region in proportion to its surface area. So um, arguably that, that looks a bit like the kind of thing that's an epistemic restriction on our ability to learn things about the world rather than about what's really there. So kind of, it's an interesting question, I think, how we should distinguish between what features are our, of our observations reflect what is really there and which features just reflect our sort of limited perspective on it. Can I uh, take that as an avenue to talk not just about information but about mathematics in general? It's often, one often comes across a statement that mathematics is the language of the universe. And that's something that I can't quite accept. And I've said in other venues that it's the only human language that allows us to comprehend the universe at a very intimate level. And it has several uh, hundred years of proving that. So, but that doesn't mean that nature herself uses that language. 
So this emphasis on the distinction between what there is and our perception of what there is, this is a very important thing to keep in mind, I believe. I think this is crucial when it comes to information, because this word gets used in so many different ways. I mean, there's information in the sense of something we know, you know some facts that we, uh, that we have. And then I, I call this semantic information. I mean, it's the original idea of information. I got some information. I know where the Helix Center is. It's on 82nd Street. Okay, that's, uh, that's information. That's something a person has or knows. Then there's information as bits which is, you know, zeros or ones and so on, these mathematical entities, these things that might be out there in the universe. And that's not necessarily tied to anything anyone knows. That's just tied to what's out there. In my book, I call this structural information to distinguish from semantic um, information. And it gets confusing because in contemporary, like, databases, computer science, the web, these two things go together. People use zeros and ones, the bits, to code facts things we know, but I think we've just really got to separate these things, and it's a shame that we've got the same word for these two incredibly important but totally different concepts. There's bits, there's facts, and these are really thoroughly different from each other. Yeah, and also sometimes when people say information, what they mean is number of degrees of freedom or something like that, which again is mm -hmm. not the same as bits or uh, structure or semantic information necessarily, so it would be nice to distinguish those things better. I count that as a kind of, stru kind of structural information, it, just, it's, it needn't just be two, you know, you have the bits, two yeah. ways, there's three ways, there's tricks, there's, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. maybe there's even continuous information for degrees of freedom. When degree of freedom, you could have many bits, but they could be re required to be correlated in certain ways, so mm -hmm. the number of effective degrees of freedom could be much smaller than the number of bits in your mm -hmm. system. I want to go back to this uh, uh, Jim's notion about the self-correcting codes and whether or not it's a reflection. And of course, you didn't mean to suggest it's it is the uh, survival of the fittest, strictly speaking. Or anyway, it's not biological evolution. If it would be evolution, it would be some other sort of evolution. And of course, there have been a lot of mathematical models applied to how there are self-correcting. Uh, features of the biological systems and they usually do once again go back to theories about entropy and dissipation of energies etc um, and um, you know I, I'm, I'm wondering whether that's a way to get a handle on in some way like well what would it what would it imply if the universe goes through I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a self-correcting uh, change would be something moving away from what you think the, the way entropy normally would be functioning Right. I mean, towards a, yeah. So my comments were, were within the very tight bounds of looking at this thing called supersymmetry, the mathematical supersymmetry. That's what I've spent my entire adult life looking at. And in those confines, this idea about error correction, there's only one. I have an intuitive way which I would never submit as a scientific paper. And that is that it's my intuitive feel that if there were something like this kind of evolution that we're talking that that would drive the presence of these error correcting codes into the mathematical laws, that it has something to do with exactly this point about the universe evolving. Because in genetics, right, in genetics the argument is that error correcting codes are there because if you have two genomes, one with error correcting codes and one without, the genome with the error correcting code is more efficient at producing progeny because the one without produces progeny that don't survive. And so something like that, you know, if you try to map that over to this picture, then you get the idea that 
you know, that this kind of evolution that you brought up, uh, Poincaré talking about the universe of God, that it's maybe literally possible, and that that would be perhaps why we could see this remnant of a set of error-correcting codes showing up in the laws of physics. I found that a very attractive picture. That the, you know, going back to this purse, Charles Purse, um, you know, that the universe kind of gets into a habit. It, get, it got into a habit of expanding. It got into a habit of having gravitational forces because perhaps, you know, the, the, the genome has made this a good fit for things, at least for some, for some amount of time. And, but of course, there's always random variations. Let's say there is higgledy-piggledy deeply in the universe. Things do change. And when things change, the, the laws that are the most adapted to it, you know, hang around. And the ones that aren't so well adapted to it disappear. That's kind of cute. Uh, going back to this other thing that Jim said about that mathematics is the only language, it just reminded me of a, of a philosopher I can never remember the name of. Um, but I read about that philosopher in some essay by Richard Rorty. I can't remember Richard Rorty's name. And uh, Rorty attributed to this philosopher the phrase or the slogan that the world is not sentence-shaped. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can write all you want about the world, but the world itself goes beyond anything that you can write about it. I think it's Derrida, as he was. I think it was a Derrida. I think it was. Okay. <laughs> It sounds like something he might oh say, gosh. too, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I've been accused of being a philosopher <laughs> by people like him. <laughs> I always try to share yeah, Well, I think he tried to, you know, you know, whatever, provide some sort of background or substance, his way of looking at Derrida's work. Yeah. It was Wittgenstein who said in the Tractatus, the world is everything that is the case. This was like the world is a world of facts. And to many people, that suggested a linguistic picture. But then he changed reality. his mind. He did. He totally changed his mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a popular view anymore, I think, that the world is sentence-shaped. I was recently uh, listening to a lecture by Mikhail Gromov, who was uh, talking about evolution. And one of the million things he seems to have his, his fingers on uh, is really incredible. And he said, you know, evolution is actually very stupid. And, you know, you just survive and die or whatever. And, but... Um, a lot of the models we use in creating computer models are, we often think they're brilliant. They do incredible, brilliant things. And in, in some instances, they solve problems that we as biological entities can't solve. It's much faster, for example, et cetera. So one challenge to the idea that we're in a simulation is that, uh, is that things move along very slowly. They don't change suddenly with sharp angles or, you know, and again, maybe that's because that's what we're used to. They, they, they change as fast or as slowly as we're accustomed to, and that's normal for us, right? But, you know, I, all of us understood that if, if the laws of causality suddenly changed or there was some other kind of, uh, 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 you know, whatever, th those sorts of changes would be possible for a simulation. I guess that's what I'm saying, okay. right? Yeah. Is that... I think the simulators might be just be setting up the simulation like one simulations one at a time overnight, test out different laws. Maybe they're running a whole batch of like a, a million different simulations, just vary the parameters 
in the laws of physics and so on. And they just let them all, each of them run out. They have to come back in the morning, check out the stats. Which ones? And, and, and then they'll update. That's how the laws of physics evolve, by the way. It's like, okay, well, these ones produce interesting results, so let's focus in on uh, let's focus in on those. But yeah, no reason why they need to be paying so much attention to every individual simulation that like the laws are going to change. Maybe what grounds do we have for drawing any any inferences about what methodology the simulators, if they exist, were, are adopting? You know, we don't seem to have any sort of starting point to imagine what their purpose might be or what they're trying to achieve. So I don't necessarily see that we have good grounds in that scenario to suppose that they won't suddenly interfere because we just have no no possible understanding of what on earth they might be up to or what they're trying to do. It's, it's true. God moves in mysterious ways. So do the simulators. It's awfully hard to know their character. I mean, maybe you can assume they're kind of like us, and then you'll get one. I mean, why? I, mean, I just don't I see how that. we have any 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 way to narrow down the space of possibilities right. if we allow that kind of possibility yeah. to start with. Let's not assume they're like us. What's that? Let's not assume they're like us. Right. Well, we, we couldn't do that either. We couldn't assume they are any assume they're anything like us, or if they are, whoever they are. Twenty-six dimensional Exactly. Chris asked earlier whether or people is it possible people will find some sort of comfort in this, and I I don't know the answer to that either. Maybe they do. Maybe some people do. Others don't. Maybe partially we all do, but we do know people find entertainment in it. <laughs> but we, I know at least one instance where I think some comfort, evidence of comfort was uh, exhibited. Um, so in 2008, as I said, I and a group of mathematicians and physicists found this very weird result. It took us three years to get the papers published, by the way, because we couldn't convince our, our colleagues that we had done our math correctly. But after uh, a popular article appeared on this work in 2010 in the British journal Physics World, there was an online comment by a young man of deep religious faith, and he took comfort in this idea of simulation because it matched his conception of a benevolent God at work in the universe. So some people have taken comfort from it. You know, there's, there's a cute story about Einstein. It, it may be apocryphal, uh, or, or it may not. It, you know, Einstein is, is known as the sort of arch-determinist, that, you know, that uh, the universe was, is just happening. And um, that we really, we, as people, don't play an active role in, in, in the universe. Uh, so it, a kind of fatalist. Anyway, the cute story is that um, is that if you trace his his personal letters from the times when he was having affairs, um, you know, on, on his wife, that he would take a very fatalistic stance in in the personal letters, and then at times when when he was on the straight and narrow, he would sort of not use that rhetoric. <laughs> so very much. So it looks like Einstein could find his own comfort in, in the idea of a fatalistic universe. Yeah, I, I had no choice. I had no choice but to have this affair. I think there are these studies that when people read articles about there being no free will, they're a little more likely to cheat, I think. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the devil made me do it. Exactly. 
wonder, I was wondering when I went, I would go back to the idea of information having this two-faced quality to it. I wonder, you know, uh, you know, Kant wrote a lot about how we apply a certain intuition when we look at the universe and see some things reflected back, like space-time and NASA mathematical facts. Um, I'm wondering, because I understand, David, you've written some more about the extended mind, which is another sort of iteration of that approach. Like, what can you logically derive from the fact that we are playing a role in what, what, how we see the universe? Do you want to say something about extended mind? Well, extended mind is part of the idea that the tools we use become, become parts, of our, uh, parts of our mind. So this is um, something we've all gotten so familiar to with, uh, so familiar with, with smartphones. The uh, smartphone it stores phone numbers for me, taken over from my memory, it navigates for me, it uh, does planning for me. And so and as we live these increasingly digital lives, so much of our minds is now extending out into these digital environments. In this new era, actually, of the metaverse, uh, where we're going to be, pretty soon we're going to be wearing augmented reality glasses. It'll recognize people uh, for us. We'll have to remember everyone's names. It's going to be, uh, that's, going, that's going to be useful. And um, yeah, with so much of the computing is going to take. So then the boundary between us and our environment is going to gradually become, uh, become porous. And whether or not the physical universe is a universe of bits, our mind may come to at least some considerable extent a mind um, of bits, partly constituted by these computer processes in our environment. And then the mind in turn, of course, helps construct our sense of the world. And that was, for, that was the big idea for, uh, for Kant, that uh, so much of our ideas about reality come from you know, innate constraints on the way our mind is built to, uh, to interpret the world. But yeah, the way our mind is interpreting the world is actually constantly changing and evolving as our brains change and evolve. And let me just say, I, I really appreciate your making the distinction uh, between um, a partial simulation, let me call it that way, and then the total simulation, because the partial one feels a little bit more comfortable to a physical scientist like myself, because I, I need to, as our colleague here said, I need to have the idea that I can falsify, mm -hmm. right? This is a, a great definition, one of the great definitions in, of, of science is that it's about things that we can falsify, that we don't actually prove things correct, what we do is falsify our belief systems, and as long as, I'm, as you'll give me that partial simulation, I'm comfortable doing that. Doing that. However, there's another aspect to the metaverse that you keep coming back to that I've been thinking about for a while, which is the universe, uh, obviously, uh, I'm sorry, uh, as we take these uh, external instrumentalities and let them grow, then of course there's this thing that you know about called the Internet of Things out there. Called the what? The Internet of Things. Internet of Things. Right? The Internet yeah. of Things is out there. It's all these smart devices that are embedded in things. They have already become co-evolving because of us. Mm -hmm. One can imagine that they will somehow internalize an evolutionary development of their own that we no longer control. And of course, that's, that's a frightening idea perhaps, but when you start talking about things coming, our mind going into things, you have to also then, of course, ask a question about those things getting their own mind. Not to mention all these uh, these AI systems, these language models that I think you guys were talking about here this morning, that are basically trained up on text produced by us, all of 
over the internet. So they start from a basis of, of us and that they are internalizing elements of us, which they then project into, uh, you know, into their own world. As these language models are going to be increasingly systems where interacting with, yeah, that Kantian building of the world that started with us extends to them, and who knows what yeah, And of course there's already uh, the AIs that do art. Uh, you know, we've been following these recent discussions of, of AIs that produce art, and uh, I have to tell you that there's this one particular incident that I think we've all read about, about human artists in a competition that turns out a piece of AI won the competition. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of you have actually looked at that image that was the winner. I actually love it. I mean, it, it elicits an emotional response from me, and I find that extraordinary. So the, the simulation hypothesis and this issue of the AI are, in a way, opposites. In the simulation hypothesis, some other uh, programmers are controlling or, or creating the world building. In the AI hypothesis, is the computers and the programs we create are going to be controlling us. <laughs> because these well, ways, yeah, or maybe both at once, right? Maybe this is a simulation actually put together by AIs in the next universe, <laughs> for whom it's absolutely trivial to generate a simulation of a universe like this, because they have so much, so much processing power. But I think you're right; they're different. They tend to be different. Uh, tend to be different ideas. Of course, if we are actually creatures of a simulation, especially if we're in a pure simulation, there's a sense in which we are already AIs. We are ourselves simulated creatures, in which case we say, turns out being an AI is not so bad. <laughs> David, I, have you met my friend Mario? I don't know if you know him. Oh, yeah, Mario. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his, his universe is the, uh, his, his, the original metaverse, he's right? He's a the very Mario agreeable world. He's an yeah. agreeable guy. He'll do whatever you ask. Yeah, he seems happy. Yeah. <laughs> he seems happy. Yeah, who? Um, Have you seen Free Guy? It's about, uh, it's about a video game character who's basically a non-player character in the video game. All the humans come in. It's like, hey, we non-player characters. We deserve rights too. Right to. <laughs> this is real for us. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the, the, the idea that we may uh, evolve along with the development of these technologies is something I think that's already happened. Some of us don't realize it because it's something that's been in the background. We talked about this in one of our earlier uh, roundtables, namely that you know our brains have not evolved uh, apparently or evolved enough to account for the incorporation of sort of reading and writing centers in the brain. Like the brains of, of earlier humans before there was a writing system were this, essentially the same brains. But now we seem to have these modules of, and maybe we should have had Ned Block about this too. Who, right? There are the, the sort of nodule, modules rather in our brain that are devoted to writing, reading, and sometimes one and not the other. Um, there, so there, there are cases where we've adapted to the, these technologies. It's a technology. Right? So the brain is kind of an all purpose flower. <laughs> it's, it's waiting to be baked in any way that we, that we might ask. Well, yeah. The world may not be sentence-shaped, but the brain is sentence-shaped. Yeah. <laughs> some, little, some little bits of it are sentence-shaped, at least. They're adapted to deal with language. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, well, I, I have to confess, um, the, the tedium 
of discussing what the universe really is is getting to me. <laughs> um, because, you know, I think we began with talking that what it might be we have dubious access to. Uh, our categories of understanding, our epistemic constraints, um, the autonomy with which the universe, or nature as you call it, unfolds, so that, that um, puts us in a very difficult position as far as being able to make any kind of knowledge claim about it. Um, and I, I think the, the technological fetishism that has infected this conversation pertaining to my simulations have to be somehow technologically mediated. There are these simulation devices, um, while at the same time conceding that our brains are simulating things all the time by virtue of how we process information. Um, I, I, we should also consider that we, we may be in types of simulation that have nothing to do with technology, that have to do more with our, um, our myths, the, the, the way we kind of organize um, our understanding of one another, our acculturation, um, that, that also creates a, a bubble of reality, so to speak, a metaverse um, that you know, isn't um, it from bit or, or um, you know, technological, but very cultural, um, you know, centered in, in the challenges of being you know, ignorant, human, manipulated by power structures. Um, th those simulations are also important to, to consider. Mm -hmm. Is the, uh, the mind's construction of reality is itself a kind of, a kind of, of simulation? I mean, you know, so much, so, much in the, uh, so much in the mind is constructed. It goes back to your point about, uh, about Kant. I mean, in a way, it's, it's not exactly the same idea. The world itself is a simulation based on a... Uh, based on a computer, but all of our experience of reality is actually, it's, a, it's an interaction between the mind and the, uh, between the mind and the world. And our minds these days are so, yeah, so bombarded with so many, so many different things to try and construct things in a, uh, in a certain way. And technology is part of that, but it's by no means, by, by no means the only, uh, the only, the only part of that. So there's a, that's a quite different sense in which you know, we could all be said to be living in a, a simulation. We're, we're all living to some degree in a, in a world which is constructed by our minds. And our minds, talking about psychedelics, <coughs> can feel and see things under the influence of them completely differently so that the person feels totally different things about the world themselves, reality, than without them. So there are layers of what, what actually our mind and our perceptions and our reality really is. Right. Yeah, well, I think drugs in general can do that. So can, can art, so can conversation. Um, but I, I, speaking of hallucinogens specifically, they, they have um, much like information, two faces. And there's a, the, the way that they can conjure up in the mind of um, new visions, new experiences, uh, and can be pleasing for a moment, can be potentially for some people entrapping, can lead to psychosis. Um, but they can also move in a very different direction and um, dismantle the constraints of understanding, um, 
information processing that allow us to organize the world to kind of you know, there's a notion in, in neuroscience of prediction coding constantly throwing hypotheses out to the world um, our model of the world representing a best fit scenario uh, like an error entertaining and it's interesting to consider based on what you're saying Elias also some people start using drugs to change their consciousness for entertainment I mean we actually call them recreational drugs right so that's one of it, their possible usages uses um, I really was interested in hearing what people thought about well what is it about thinking there's another level of, of being that we don't have direct access to why do people find that so appealing? I think that's a really important topic. I think for me, I mean, as a physicist slash philosopher of physicist, it's an important thing to remember because I think if one 
it assumes that the link between what is observed and what is there is too direct. That is liable to lead into a whole lot of confusions and misunderstandings about what the physics is really telling us. And so I think that as, as physicists and as scientists, one should not, not sort of lose sight of the fact that we don't see everything, we don't know everything, um, and we need, need to be careful, to, as I say, to distinguish between to what what is what what uh, facts are about are about our mode of access and what facts are about the world itself and how to not sort of allow those two categories to get mixed up and cause uh, mistakes. We we do live in a uh, I like this yeah on the importance of the unconscious this kind of brings back that we do in fact live in a simulation quite regularly you know every night. <laughs> We dream and we enter into a simulation of our own of our own making. And furthermore, a simulation which is not generated consciously, it's generated by our minds, but almost entirely unconsciously. And then we interact with that uh, with that simulation and it's very often extremely real and extremely meaningful to us. And that gets us at the power the minds again, it gets at the mind's power to construct the world, but also the mind's mind's power to actually construct a world unconsciously. And that's really an extraordinary creative power. And of course, it's doing that every moment in our ordinary, uh, in our ordinary waking life as well, in our perception of reality. It's just less obvious to us. I, I, I like the idea of extending our thoughts to these, I called it earlier, like a sort of a thought experiment, which may be one way of looking at the idea of there being a, a, a simulation going on. Because, there, because of these mysteries, you know, like, some folks like to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And what are the consequences of my thinking along these lines? Can I, can I come up with something thoughtful, creative, might it actually move physics forward? But even if it doesn't, it's a way for me to think about the world. It's a, and it's a, so it's an act of creativity, too. And occasionally something good comes of it. So we know the famous thought experiments through history. I mean, Einstein, I guess, was one of the first who really said, I'm doing a thought experiment here. Watch out. No. Um, and uh, and uh, no, it's, it's like this is creative. Let me think about what it's like to sit on the light beam, right? Uh, and uh, that's a that's a wonderful way for science to proceed. And it's not what do you call normal science? That's that's the creative part of science. So I, I'm really pleased that some people are willing to go at it and go at it and go at it. I think it's wonderful for all the rest of us. I think the, the question that's been haunting me is. Um, whether it is possible to know. So, you know, we've been talking about the very um, illuminating findings in physics, for example, that um, get us, I think, closer to the, the, um, the nature of how things might be. But if we take very seriously um, Kant's recognition that what we perceive and understand are invariably molded by um, things that may have nothing to do with the nature of things. That, there, that it may be an entirely um, human endeavor, understanding, of which nature has really very little to say. <laughs> um, what position are we in? Can we make any real claims about what the world is indeed? I'm inclined to think we can't. You can't? I'm inclined to think that one can't. Mm -hmm. that, um, uh, 
but I'm, I'm an American pragmatist. That's why I know so much about Hertz and James. And, uh, that you know, we we do what works, or we you know we try our best to do things. And the, I'm inclined to think that the laws of physics capture more about our limitations. And um, you know, so going back to the evolution, how how can the laws of physics possibly evolve? You can ask. Well, one game you can play is to say, well, the laws of physics in fact are just an expression or a codification of all my various limitations or us as a species. Um, we can't help but fall. We can get around that though, you know, with a parachute or, you know, with a flying machine. We ultimately can get around some of these things. Uh, well, we can't get past, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light. Well, maybe that's an, uh, an expression of our present day limitation. But we are evolving species, and our limitations may be different in the future, less limitations. So maybe the law of, you know, the speed of light is a constant, is something that can be broken. If, you know, you don't say, if, if you just take a different point of view, that the laws of physics are, are, are capturing um, how best to perceive the world, given what we've got. And that's not a knowledge claim. That, that's just a statement of more about us. Practical. Mm -hmm. I think that the comment you just made points to something that I try to keep in my mind and that I try to tell people about science. That when a scientist makes a claim about some kind of ultimate statement, you should take that with an extraordinarily large grain of salt. <laughs> because we... of human thinking, there's this notion of the truth. I like to tell people, when you're a scientist, you will change your belief in the truth at the drop of a fact. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the word truth for scientists generally is not what most people call the truth. And therefore, I think that, that we need to be very, very humble when we make proclamations that we know. We know subject to our limitations. And that's why I come back to this. I, I definitely have a lot of sympathy for the view that the laws of nature may have a lot more to do with our limitations than we realize. But at the same time, I'm skeptical that that can be the whole story because you know the very notion of a limitation uh, presupposes the existence of some kind of like modal rigidity that like there are things we can and can't do and those remain sort of consistent in a, 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 over time. Um, and it doesn't really make sense to me that there could be such limitations if there's not some kind of background schema of laws or reality from which those limitations arise. So although I do think it's very important to recognize that the exact form of the laws we come up with probably have a lot to do with our own epistemic limitations. I don't think that means we should we should suppose there, there is no reality or there are no sort of background laws at all. I just think we need to be perhaps a lot more careful than we currently tend to be to try to sort of tease apart the threads of our science which are about our limitations and the threads which are about whatever the sort of modal, modal rigidity is which, which from which those limitations arise. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a world... There's a world outside us, no question, and um, 
and we can find out things about it. You know, the world, you know, you, you look at the world, you look away, you look back, it's still there, it, uh, it fights back. The question is, you know, what can you know about it? It seems to be the least most something you ever say about mathematics from science. We can know something about something of its structure. And so can we actually know its ultimate nature? I don't know. I mean, you know, this kind of comes up in thinking about simulation and so on. There's underneath that mathematics, underneath those bits, there's so many different ways the world could be. It could be consciousness. It could be another universe. It could be pure information. It could be pure bits. I guess I'm actually inclined to think we occasionally get little glimpses of the ultimate nature of reality, not least through our own consciousness, and that maybe that's actually a glimpse um, of ultimate reality. And who's to say that there can't be you know, moment, special moments of awareness, whether through meditation or psychedelics and so on, to give you some, some clearer awareness of that ultimate nature of, uh, of reality. I'm at least optimistic that it could be possible to know some tiny element of this, but, you know, as what did they say in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Space is big. Reality is big. It's bigger than us. We can't expect to know all of it. Well, I think it's a, sort of a mistake to to want to want to answer the question, what is reality ultimately made out of? You know, I think that's not the kind of question science really gives us access to. But at the same time, I am optimistic that science does continue, you know, increasing our understanding of things. And there have been developments throughout the course of science that have while not telling us what the world is made out of, at least giving us a better understanding of what that is structurally and, and uh, sort of removing from our, our way of thinking things that we thought were definite and absolute that uh, that we realised were not so. So I think that, you know, they're, they're, we can certainly learn things about ultimate reality without necessarily learning you know, what it's made out of or, or what the sort of fundamental stuff is. I'm still wrestling with something you said very casually, that there is a world outside of us. What do you mean? What do you mean by a world outside of us? There's a world outside my consciousness, at least, that is producing my consciousness. But Berkeley's, Berkeley's example of the tree and the cloud, that uh, you, know, you look around, you come back, oh, the tree is still there. The next day, it wasn't in my consciousness. Where was it? So there's something, you know, well, Berkeley's answer was God had the idea of the tree and the cloud. The physics idea <coughs> is that it's, you know, there's a bunch of matter out there. There's even the idea that it could just be another part of my mind or a cosmic mind that I'm all part of that's, that's, uh, that's out there and it's responsible for my experiences of the tree. But at least there has to be something outside my consciousness to explain all these regularities, all these things that it's my consciousness discovers. It's also, I think, about intersubjectivity as well, the fact that, you know, we presumably are all conscious and we are all having experiences and we presume those experiences are related to each other in certain regular ways and the world outside is whatever it is that gives rise to the set of related experiences and, and produces these relations between our experiences that are kind of systematizable and, and uh, you know, relate us to each other in, in ways that we can make sense of. I wanted to follow up on something Emily just said and also what you said earlier, Jim, that um, when you're doing science, you get this idea of truth that's different from the one you might have come into with as a naive, you know, a non-scientist or just a young person, right? That things like, well, what really is there in the universe? And, and I think some of us, I think all of us probably agree, well, I don't know, that's sort of a woolly question and uh, we don't take that that seriously. Although we do look like we're earnestly pursuing it in some strange way. I think there's, a, there's a, one of the interesting responses to your comment earlier, Elias, was that about the nature being something that we're applying a, 
models of understanding that are not in nature, they're part of us, but, but yes, they are in nature because we're part of nature, right? I mean, to a degree. You can say something about that, um, and maybe that's, that's one way out of this, part, a partial way out of the conundrum. I, I think it's interesting that we do always want to pursue things like, well, what really is there? I think that's human nature to ask that question, and it may be a slightly childish question, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it is. But it's still something that fascinates us all and maybe why we're thinking about the metaverse. So we have to stop now because I think there may, I imagine there are going to be some questions from the audience. And so if anyone has any, would they come up to the microphone? So thank you very much for that fascinating panel. My question is about it from bit from it and artificial general intelligence. Um, you might be familiar with that concept. It's basically not narrow AI, but AI that will be a singularity and could be the metaverse. And then the point is that the it underneath is us. And you said before that the it underneath must be God because it produces something without mistake that means are we God? And if we take that even further, the metaverse will come to happen. I'm curious about your reaction. I missed the claim at the end. If we're God, then could you say the last one? It is basically all the collective intelligence of all programmers. Yeah. And they produce the illusion, and we are living in because if that's the um, artificial general intelligence, which is basically the metaverse that's basically the singularity that's basically the end station of AI. So this is saying AGI, this is the view on which AGI has already happened um, and the metaverse yeah, program was actually produced by an artificial general um, intelligence? AGI is produced by us. So we are, or, or the, I mean the universe or the group of all programmers. I mean, if the simulation hypothesis is correct, we are already artificial intelligences, and we're general intelligences, so we'd be, uh, we'd be AGIs already inside a simulation. But I guess the thought is that exactly the same could happen again once we create artificial general intelligences, which you know, could happen within 10, 20, 30 years, on current, uh, given the pace of current developments. It will then be in a position to create the metaverse and a full-scale virtual world far better than... Uh, than, than we are. So AGI is a possible route to the, the creation of metaverses, of simulated universes, and so on. And we will be God. We will be God for those universes, absolutely, yeah. We have to use that power responsibly. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be God? <laughs> yes. Thanks for this panel. Um, I'm always excited to go to a panel that, where the question begins with, is the universe whatever? It's always going to be fun. I had the benefit of being able to sort of check on a few things that were discussed during the panel, uh, the first of which was Rorty. Uh, Rorty is, of course, famous for claiming that truth is sentence-shaped. And I looked it up, the idea that the world divides itself into sentence-shaped chunks that we call facts is Rorty's critique of analytical philosophy. Which I think is interesting because it's an epistemological question. And as I was listening to this conversation, it seemed to me that meta has come to mean almost exclusively simulation or simulative. 
Um, whereas meta can actually be used in a couple of different ways. One is, of course, to say that it's a simulation. And I think this question immediately becomes tedious because even if it is, it's still the same universe, right? A simulation is always exactly equal to itself. So the way that which you would test and which, you know, you would always, how many layers of simulations of simulations would it go back? It's an interesting question. But um, in terms of it, of it not being so much ontological but epistemological, Meta can also be used to be like the thing about the thing. So metacognition is thinking about thinking, metalinguistics is language about language. And this brings me back to John Wheeler, who was very interested in the idea that the universe is observing itself. So is there a way in which meta, the meta-universe or the metaverse is the universe that observes itself? And this, to me, takes us back to the hard question of consciousness, which is to say, are, is our consciousness of the universe already a metaverse? because it's the universe observing itself. <laughs> well, I like that, I like that. Um, and I don't know how to respond. Um, I think I'm gonna do Jim's strategy of think about it for <laughs> three minutes and then, then maybe I, I can- And then have a brilliant answer. I, I, I come back to that. I like the idea that metacognition, you know, meta, meta X is X about X. Metacognition is cognition about cognition. Meta theory is theory about a theory. By those lights, metaverse, I don't know, it's verse about a verse. It's like verses across the universe. <laughs> the term universe is the one crossing. So the metaverse would be the thing that crosses itself. So it's, we're back to the sort of self-reflexive. It means to the side of, right? Mm -hmm. That's what meta, that's yeah. etymology of it. Maybe it's short, meta maybe it's short for meta-universe? Which yes, is like yeah. universe about a universe? Yeah, you know, another image that John Wheeler used, so, I mean, he's famous for having drawn the a, U. Yeah. a U for the universe with, an, an, eyeball. with an eyeball yeah. on it. Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's a lovely little spot in them. In his, his, he always carried a big notebook around and would take notes all the time. And in the margin, he sketches this, and he says, uh, "I'll have to explain the story of how this came to me two days ago." And it, if you look in the notebooks, you can't find you can't find the story. We'll of, never know <laughs> of how it came to him. Um, but there was another image that he used. He, he he wondered whether the universe was a self-excited circuit self-excited circuit. And I don't know if that has something to do with with um, what you're talking about. But, but he was thinking of it as, as somehow being, you know, coming back on its own, an Ouroboros or something um, for a long time in the self-excitation. I, I should think longer. <laughs> Three more minutes. You only took two minutes, by the way, maybe. <laughs> I don't, I cannot possibly come up with a good answer to, to that query. But it, I think, I would offer this as a thought. So, I'm 71 years old, I've been studying a piece of mathematical physics since I was in my 20s. It's the same piece of mathematical physics that worries me now, that worried me in the, my late 20s. And I've thought about the universe this entire 40, 40, 50 years of life. And to me, as we delve in these kinds of domains between philosophy and physics and recognizing the relationship between these two fields temporally, the oddest thing I know about the universe goes, apparently,
apparently the evidence suggests it was started about 14 billion years ago in this thing we call the Big Bang. It had this period where it blew up from something much, much smaller than atom to this thing we live in. It underwent transformations in space and time, stars turned on, galaxies formed. To me, the oddest thing about the universe is that in this entire time frame, it apparently only produces one copy of each of us. To me, this is extraordinarily mysterious. And so, in trying to answer the questions about the metaverse, what I am driven to is, in some sense, why do I, as an individual, come to be in whatever this structure is? To me, that's the deepest question that I know that I'll never have an answer to. I think it's the idea that uh, we are, that's another way of saying what I was actually trying to bring up just at the very end, and we are a part of nature too. So in that sense, yes, we are looking back on nature with our natural selves. Any other questions? Um, there's a neuroscientist named Rodolfo Linas who talks about imagination as the physics of the mind. And I find that so beautiful because it's about trying to grasp reality but also know about all the probabilities. I'd be so upset if we really understood everything about the universe <laughs> because then what would we do with our imaginations? And I just wonder how you experience the difference between your speculations and just the play of imagination. I'm willing to respond to that one, <laughs> as opposed to the hard question that came over here. So one of the things that, uh, again, when I talk to the public about how science works, starts with a statement that Einstein, Einstein made. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Many people have heard this statement, but there's a, a sentence or two after that which, unless you read them, this statement can be mysterious. And it goes, because... Uh, Knowledge encompasses all that we now know about the world, but imagination encompasses all that we will ever know about the world. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, one of the great joys of, of being a scientist is to understand that my scientific knowledge grows, the, the rational part that we've talked about as physicists grows, but the driving force of that is imagination at the boundaries where we don't know things it's imagination that's driving the growth of that, but subject to the hard test of nature. That's how we grow uh, in, in knowledge. So um, without the imagination, we, that process stops. And imagination is deeply, deeply non-rational. It comes from the parts of me that I prefer one piece of music to another, another code. There's nothing rational about that. But that's what's driving my rational growth as a being understanding this universe. Uh, imagination may not only exist at the, the boundaries of comprehension, it may be implicated in comprehension itself and how we understand things, the theories we formulate, what we construct. But it's at play all the time. I, I see theory as kind of like 
fossilized imagination as a, something that's kind of, kind of gotten stuck in. There's an interplay there between imagination and rationality because you know, one imagines wild possibilities and then one applies you know, rationality to them to ask, does this, does this make sense? You know, how, how can this all fit together? And one sort of pairs down the possibilities that one has imagined to, to arrive at something which is a sort of a viable theory. So they, they, the, the two components kind of come together to, to produce something that is original but also makes sense. Until we imagine something else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagination is both, as you say, more than what we know now about the world. Maybe it's even more than we will ever know about the world. Because imagination is not just about this world. Physics tells us about this world. Imagination tells us about the vast space of possible worlds that we can, uh, that we can explore. And there's so much to know about that space, of, uh, that space of possible worlds that goes beyond this world. Even if today everything we've said is nonsense about this world, we've still described a possible world with a number of possible worlds. And maybe that's in its own way a source of insight. world in which we recur a million times. Yeah. times. I, I want to pick up on what Dr. Gates said that in, in uh, Jacques Hadmard's book, where he interviewed scientists. Um, Einstein also said every idea came to him as an image, not as a theory. And it was only his desire to relate and communicate that forced him to put it into theorems. I think that's so beautiful because it's about what you've all been trying to do today in terms of trying to relate to us and tell us what you think you know and what you know you don't know. So I'm very grateful. Well, that's great. Well, I think that's a wonderful point at which we can stop. I'd hoped that it would turn out the way it did, but this did exceed my imagination. It was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. And I'm glad there's that extra, a little bit of extra surplus left over. So thank you again, everyone. I hope everyone here enjoyed themselves as well. Thank you. Thank you.